and welcome back to the Forster's More Than Law podcast, where we look beyond the practice of law and focus on issues that matter to our clients, as well as reinforcing the values that underpin Forster's as a firm and its culture. I'm Miri Stickland, Head of Knowledge, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Hannah Wakeford, who's a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol, as well as being the academic lead for sustainability in the School of Physics at Bristol University. And alongside Hannah is our very own Laura Howarth, who's a senior associate in our commercial real estate team. Welcome to you both. Hello, it's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to be here. So on a number of our previous podcast episodes, we've talked quite a lot about sustainability in the context of our built environment. And today we're going to go much further afield beyond even the confines of planet Earth and look to the further reaches of outer space. So listeners won't have missed the news reports over the last few years focusing on Elon Musk's privately funded SpaceX program. And rather fortuitously, in the context of the timing of recording this podcast, just this week, there have been reports confirmed by the Australian Space Agency of space junk from a craft belonging to SpaceX having been located in New South Wales. So, Hannah, can I ask you firstly to talk us through what is space junk and what's its potential impact? So space junk kind of comes under a number of different categories, and this can be anything that is unwanted that is in orbit around our planet. And that encompasses things like that are natural, so meteorites, meteorides, things that come from comet dust, comet tails that have come close to the Earth's orbit and have been picked up by our gravitational well. But the majority of the material is the artificial human-made objects and debris that is in orbit and most of this orbital debris is not serving a purpose it's not functional anymore which is why we use the term junk for it because it's not like saying something like a satellite that is working this is something that either no longer has fuel is no longer being serviced is no longer communicating with the earth is just floating around in many many cases it's also Really, really tiny things, a fleck of paint off a spacecraft is also considered space junk. So space junk really comes in all kinds of sizes and it has a big, wide range of impacts because of that. And so how do you then dispose of space junk and prevent it from harming other planetary environments and I suppose obviously you know referencing the story I was talking about earlier including planet earth in that yeah so there's a number of things in that question that I kind of need to unpack actually so there's lots of different things in terms of the the space junk around the earth and in earth's orbit that we can manage and reduce So to do something about the hundreds of thousands of pieces of space junk that currently orbit our Earth, you need to come up with what seem like really quite radical plans to remove them. This includes things like harpoons, nets being being kind of launched into space and capturing things and then entering them into the Earth's atmosphere where they would then heat up due to the friction and burn up. It also includes things like anti-satellite missiles, which is what what we've been hearing in the news for many, many years now of countries testing 
anti-satellite missile technology, which then actually causes more space junk whilst trying to remove space junk. So a number of these conditions and ways in which we can try to manage them, they aren't sustainable right now and they aren't functional in that they don't necessarily fix the problem that we have. The thing with every environmental issue, and this is an environmental issue, is that the best solution is prevention. Prevent the buildup of space junk. And one of the ways that this is kind of trying to be done is through the planned deorbit of a spacecraft once it has served its purpose. So like I said, most of the space junk up there is non-functioning. It's things that aren't being used anymore. Once something has run out of its purpose, we can actually deorbit those objects. And deorbiting them involves pointing them towards the Earth's atmosphere at a certain angle such that the friction is so high that they burn up in the Earth's atmosphere. So that means that they're no longer cluttering our orbit. But this requires coordination. It requires a little bit of fuel. It requires precise kind of timings and knowledge of the orbit. It's not something that is particularly easy to do. And unsurprisingly, there's a lot of people, countries, that don't want to do that. There is uh, many, many different kind of legal loopholes in space where legislation has not reached it yet to kind of regulate how and why things are done. And one of the things that's kind of key at the moment is that there are kind of guidelines that are required to go through, put things in space, deorbit them or, or considering space junk, but not every single country in the world that is spacefaring, I suppose, is the best way to put it. Putting things into space has signed those or, or signed the ratifications to those. So legally, there's not a huge amount holding things in place. And I think that's that's the key for any technology or any kind of new push towards things is making sure that there's some rules. But I, I don't see how that I don't see how that kind of holds in place. That's that's you guys. Uh, I'm I'm just I'm just here to work out what what can we use these for? How can we get rid of them? And, and how can how can we make sure that we understand the impact that putting things in orbit around the Earth has? I think there's a really interesting analogy, actually, that you can draw there with the sort of prevention and decommissioning when you think about the built environment as well and you know the decommissioning of buildings where um you know you want to put up a new development and the sort of rise of retrofitting yeah i would i mean even more general than that you've got the sort of the term greenwashing which is being thrown around um all over the place at the moment and um it's it's one thing to be carbon neutral whilst relying on offsetting but actually what we need to be doing is being carbon neutral um, by relying on an actual reduction of carbon emissions. There's an argument that it's far better to not be quite carbon neutral, um, but actually focus on cutting out the use of carbon rather than relying on uh, offsetting, which we're not going to see a benefit from for, for many, many years. And actually what we need to do is um, take action that's going to benefit in the very near future. I think that's a really good point. Actually, you've led me on to 
my next question quite nicely, which is sort of, I suppose, asking you, Hannah, how harmful to the environment is space exploration? Presumably, there's quite a sizable carbon footprint and whether there are sort of measures being taken to try and offset that or greener options available? Uh, well, that's a tough one. Uh, <laughs> I like to just throw them out there. <laughs> <laughs> There's a huge amount of things that are not sustainable and are not environmentally friendly about space exploration. And that's just simply due to the, the nature of what is required to reach Earth orbit or beyond. So the Earth is a sizable planet in, in our, our solar system. It's the largest of the rocky worlds in our solar system. And that gravitational pull that we feel every day so that we can walk along nicely on the surface, that actually means that you need a lot of energy to escape it. You need a lot of energy put out to leave the Earth and go into orbit or leave it even further and go out into space to explore other parts of our solar system, say. And that energy tends to come from, from rocket fuel. And that is in itself a limited resource, but it also is also a kind of pollutant once you're burning it. So that in itself, not fantastic. We're seeing a change with that. We are seeing um, that the way in which you can build these engines is more efficient. That's fantastic. We see that with technology all the time. It gets better and better. But we're also seeing reusable materials. So it started with things like the space shuttle from NASA, which was a reusable spacecraft. It went into space and it came back down reusing. We want to reduce. We want to then reuse. And then we want to recycle. And it did all of those things. And we're seeing that again with SpaceX. They're using these reusable rockets. And that actually has reduced the amount of waste that you get from such launches by a significant amount. So there is some things to be lauded in that. But in terms of the amount of stuff that is going into space and going into Earth's orbit, in both low Earth orbits, which is things like the International Space Stations in low Earth orbit, uh, all of the Starlink satellites from, from SpaceX, the ones that are providing that global internet kind of coverage, those are all in low Earth orbit. Most of our geostationary satellites are actually our GPS systems. So those are in, in much higher orbits. So those orbit around the Earth in the same time it takes us to rotate. So they stay pointed over the same spot on the Earth. So those are in, in a slightly different orbit from these lower ones. But when we're looking at what is happening, there's been an insane increase in the number of things being sent into orbit. And this comes with the technology of reducing how much you can fit into any one what we call payload. Some of the smallest things are the size of your phone and some of them are the size of a cereal box. They And you can fit cameras in those. You can fit telescopes in those. You can fit monitoring satellites, uh, infrared cameras that point down at the earth. You can fit tons of ridiculous things in these tiny things that are being sent up into space in, in their thousands. And that becomes a problem because tracking that is not an easy, prob easy thing to do, but also other countries are sending things up and you don't have a full register of what's kind of going on up there. NASA actually tracks anything over 10 centimeters in size, but that misses a huge amount of space junk and space debris that's that's out in that could cause damage. So for example, a small fleck of paint 
in low Earth orbit is traveling at about 17,000 miles per hour. That hitting the space station is the equivalent of just a teeny tiny bullet, the size of a human hair, perhaps. So it it can cause huge amounts of damage. So we do need to regulate and understand what is going up into space. And it's just that problem is going to get more and more and more because we still have things orbiting the Earth that were sent up in the 60s. And I mean, you touched earlier on the idea of sort of harpoons or, or nets, but presumably none of that is actually, I mean, that sort of sounds science fiction-y, doesn't it? I'm assuming none of it is actually in sort of operation at the moment. Well, you'd be surprised, actually. There are some things that have been in, in, in operation that are kind of have been previously used, but are not continuously used, if that makes sense. So things like the the nets, the harpoons, things called tentacles as well, which are things that are sent up with lots of different lines that go up and capture things, uh, have also been planned and, and tested, but none of these are in regular use. So these are very much in their testing stages of what can we do about this problem. It's interesting, actually, that you you mentioned that you by trying to solve a problem, you're actually possibly creating other problems. It's something that I've been um, looking into quite a lot on the sort of renewable energy side of things. Um, So you've got issues with, you know, you've got the sun and the wind creating energy and you need a way of storing that. And our go-to at the moment is uh, lithium-ion batteries. And, you know, there's issues there with leakages, land contamination, but there's also is- issues with mining. So we have to mine the lithium and, and actually the people who live around those mines are finding that their water levels are affected by that mining. And and actually it's creating a real problem for, for those communities um, who already live in areas where um, water is scarce. So it's interesting to hear that that actually the issues that we face on on the ground are paralleled out there up in up in space. Oh, very much so. And you can see tracking of so these these kind of satellite destroying missiles are probably the worst because actually, the crowdedness of low Earth orbit right now with space debris, space junk, is such that any kind of event can create a cascade. So if you explode a satellite, it creates a lot more debris, a lot smaller debris. It's still traveling incredibly fast. That hits another thing and destroys it. That hits another thing. And you end up with this massive cascade of things destroying each other in low Earth orbit. And that creates even more things that can then have an impact on working satellites or the International Space Station, or as we've seen in the news, head down and hit the Earth. So luckily this massive piece uh, of a SpaceX satellite landed in the middle of a very remote field in Australia. They actually found about four or five other pieces as well. And this is likely from one of these cascading events where a satellite has been destroyed which then goes on to impact something else and destroys that and impacts something else and destroys that and that could have occurred many many years ago these clouds of debris that are created stay up for for decades and then have that lasting impact so we one of the hardest things both on the ground that we're trying to do with sustainability and our environment and in space is planning and thinking about all of the impacts that something might have 
and what is what is the guarantee associated with those yeah to continue the analogy with sort of the renewable energy uh side of things i think it, it was in the news it was uh, los angeles they're they're a bit ahead of us with the the solar farms uh, having great sunshine for for a lot longer um during the year so they have um a build up of defunct solar panels um which are just going to landfill because we haven't currently found a way of safely recycling those and um there's issues with um the sort of the metals used in those panels actually causing land contamination and this is if you think a solar panel has a, a useful life of about 25 to 30 years when we get to to that stage what are we going to do with all of these solar panels that are no longer useful we're going to need to find a way of recycling those a, a way of giving them a, a, another lease of life um so again it's you know we, we're, we're trying to solve a problem now but we actually need to think about how we are you know the long-term consequences of the solution um, and what we're going to do with those those materials in the future. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose similarly, I was just thinking about the fact that, you know, the government's recently reaffirmed its commitment to nuclear power, forming part of the UK's future energy strategy, um, having just recently approved the Sizewell C uh, nuclear power plant. And again, you know, that's a power source. We need to be mindful of the byproducts that, that are, produced there so I suppose my question and I suspect I know the answer that you're going to give Hannah is whether there's an argument we should be shuttling that sort of harmful waste into space um is the solar system at our disposal for our disposal it is absolutely not that <laughs> it, uh, is is not a vi it's not a viable sustainability strategy for for a number of reasons and one of those reasons is that there isn't a long-term predictable safe orbit that would be easy for us to put things into such that we would consider it removed from the problem. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that we have something which is called the Planetary Protection Act. And this Planetary Protection is a guiding principle to design missions, design anything that goes into space, to aim in preventing contamination from Earth impacting anything else in the solar system. This is particularly important for our planetary missions, so missions to Mars, for example, incredibly important. They come under a category five on this uh, one to five scale as being the most likely to cause damage to, to another planet in terms of contaminating it with things from Earth, which we really, really don't want to be doing. Um, and then things like heading towards Saturn in 2017, we had this amazing event where the Cassini orbiter, which had been orbiting around Saturn and its moons for, for 13 years, which is an amazing lifetime for a spacecraft in, in our solar system, was actually crashed into the planet Saturn. And the reason it was crashed into the planet Saturn was to remove its harmful materials that it contained from potentially impacting one of the moons around Saturn. Now, Saturn itself is a gas giant planet. It's made of mostly hydrogen and helium. It is in absolutely no way potential for any habitability or life of any kind. And the spacecraft itself was actually run by 
it was powered by nuclear heat. It had a, a nuclear generator in it, which allowed it to last for 13 years out in the cold reaches of space. And that needed to be disposed of because it was running out of fuel. It would enter unknown orbits and impacts of things could have been likely. And the moons around Saturn actually contain some of the most likely places in our solar system for us to find life beyond the Earth. It has icy moons, which have subsurface oceans underneath very thick layers of ice. It also has one of the most geologically interesting moons, in my opinion, of the solar system called Titan, which actually has an atmosphere that is thicker than the Earth's atmosphere. And it has a rain cycle. It has lakes on the surface. But unlike water lakes here on Earth, these lakes are made of ethane and methane hydrocarbons. So it, these hydrocarbon lakes are, are pitch black and they evaporate in the summer. They form clouds in the atmosphere and then they rain back down in the winter. And we really didn't want anything from this satellite to impact that moon or potentially contaminate it with things from Earth. So that is why we kind of plowed this amazing mission, which had given us so much information into a planet and gone, goodbye, you have to go now. And, and that's part of this planetary protection that is really important for the rest of our solar system, because to understand more about ourselves, our life on the Earth, where it came from, the formation of our solar system, the importance of the other planets, we need to make sure that we aren't impacting that, we aren't affecting that as humans in any way. So there is a lot of there's a lot of stuff you see in sci-fi. The big one that comes to me is Futurama, where they make this big garbage ball, they stick it on a rocket and send it into the sun. That's a brilliant, I love that idea. I think that's fantastic, but it's insanely difficult to send something into the sun. To send something into the sun takes takes hundreds and hundreds of years because the way in which you have to launch it means that it doesn't just fall into that gravitational well. It slingshots around and gets faster and faster and faster and faster and more chaotic. So there's a lot of issues with launching any kind of byproducts that we don't want here on the Earth into space. So displacement of the problem is not a solution? Not in my opinion. So, um, Hanno, on the on the topic of, of the moons, um, do you think there's somewhere out there that we might be able to make a second home? Or do you, do you think this is it? Do we need to do we need well obviously we need to look after the earth anyway but but is is the pressure on to get to keep earth a habitable place because there's literally nowhere else for us to go is there a planet b there is exactly. no planet b there is no planet b and i always say and it's it's the the most beautiful and saddest thing of all the planet earth is going to survive it's going to be here it's whether or not we can, it's whether or not other life can survive. Mammalian life is actually the most vulnerable to any changes in temperature on the earth. And we are mammals, whether we like it or not, we might be at the top of the food chain for mammals, but we are also subject to those sensitivities and changes to our planet, changes to our climate will have the largest impact on, on us and on the things that we rely upon to, to exist. So we really do need to be putting resources into understanding that, how to mitigate that, and the, the best things to do. And, and unfortunately, 
the best things to do are getting the people who are in power and the companies that are causing the majority of pollution. It's not the everyday person. It is it is large corporations that are causing the majority of this pollution, which is impacting the earth, to stop. So, um, I mean, in the built environment, we call we've been referring to sustainability as um, the challenge of a generation. I think that kind of brings home the point that not just in the built environment, more widely, you know, that just puts it into perspective. This really is the challenge of a generation and we really do need to do something about it right now. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, Hannah, I was going to ask you along those lines because um, you're the academic lead for sustainability, I think, in in the School of Physics at at the University of Bristol. So I'm interested to hear what sort of challenges you faced within that sort of academic community and, and some of the measures that you've been able to start putting in place. Yeah, it's a really fantastic role to be in. I absolutely love the the idealism and the the message that we're trying to get out. But there's also a huge amount of help that that we're getting for that. So there's one thing that we've done over the last couple of years is a program called LEAF. This is the Laboratory Efficiency Assessment Framework. So physics is is a lot of lab-based work. We have a lot of laboratories with coolers, x-ray machines, microscopes, lots and lots of different very random sometimes incredibly large machinery that has pipes all over the place we need water we need uh, gas we need vacuum chambers we need liquid nitrogen and this leaf certificate which was developed by sustainable ucl actually is an action item for universities for labs to become sustainable it's an approach to achieving sustainability in your lab through ways in which you can manage or change how you are using your equipment to minimize the impact it has on the environment. And actually, the the School of Physics was really, really pushing for this. And they were first in the University of Bristol to achieve 100% green lab status. And we, we got also Green Impact Gold Award for the work that we'd done there. So it's it's really important to promote and provide the support really behind that that is needed um so that's really the biggest thing that that we've done and and we want to keep sustaining that we want to keep that up and and make sure that all of our labs are working as efficiently as possible for what they need to do research wise but also in terms of how they impact the environment in addition to all of that we've got loads of amazing stuff that i have been lucky enough to be involved with. We we recently actually did the very simple thing. We dug a big hole in our garden out the back of our building and we planted a wildflower garden. Uh, We got a group of about 50 volunteers together to to dig out a very, very large patch on the Royal Fort Gardens in in Bristol. And we've got this beautiful wildflower garden there that was going to be kind of sustained just to make the space not only nicer, so it's sustainable in our mental health and, and in, in the way in, we, in which we interact with our environment, but it also adds that diversity, that biodiversity back into the area where you've got these buildings, where you've got these labs and universities are building heavy places. They're not, <laughs> you know, so there's little things like that that I, I really love um, as well as as well as many, many other things. That's, that's great, yeah. I mean, one of the things we see um 
is an issue for some of our clients is the sort of trade-off between biodiversity and uh, other needs when we're, we're thinking about um, solar energy plants like solar energy fields you know you that's that's a huge area of green space that you're covering in in solar panels and there's obviously a trade-off there with the biodiversity net gain that um certainly in the planning sector is really at the forefront of of people's minds at the moment um but yeah in terms of what we're doing at Forsters, um we've actually been carbon neutral since we were since 2007 so that's that's quite quite a nice claim to be able to make but you know as I was saying earlier there's this realization that um carbon offsetting just isn't good enough and, and what we need to be doing is reducing reliance on um on carbon emissions in the first place so things that we're doing are um flexible working so um reducing on commutes uh also considering those commutes when when we're um looking at statistics um thinking about our carbon emissions as a whole rather than just in the office and then a quite a nice initiative that we have going is um every, every individual and also group within the firm have got their own targets for for reducing uh, reducing waste, reducing carbon emissions. It's quite nice. Everybody's chosen uh, two or three things that they can do to make their own personal difference. Um, and that that's really, I think that's really good for actually mental health as well as, as other things, really knowing that you as an individual, albeit a small difference, you are making a difference. And as, as, as a collective, as a firm, actually that adds up to quite a lot. Um, the other thing we've got going on is that we're, we're set to move offices next year and um we're currently looking at what what that space is going to look like but a, a major focus when when looking at the plans for that for that space is going to be sustainability and making sure that that um that space works for the future yeah absolutely i i I'd echo what Laura said. I think it's really nice having those group and individual targets that it's made me much more mindful to thinking about, you know, do I need to stop off and get a disposable cup? And actually, you know, can I cycle in? I'm lucky enough I can cycle into the office, but some days the legs feel a bit older and more weary another day <laughs> yeah that's one of the things that we've got here at the university of bristol is we have a cycle to work scheme so this is a sponsored scheme where you know part of the cost of having a bicycle is is covered for you we also have this uh, really nice kind of check-in where they set up on on our main kind of buildings an area where experts come in and you just bring your bike up and they check it they make sure everything's good and that you know it's all working really nicely so it's it's about just how can we make it easier for people to make a difference and and that's one of the things it's lowering the barrier to entry to being more sustainable and and one of the things that I'm trying to do in my my classes and in my teaching and so I've been working with some amazing students uh, in the School of Physics at the University of Bristol who are our sustainability champions. And what we're trying to do is fold sustainability into the curriculum itself and teach people about the impacts of various things in a real world application of the physics that they're learning. So it's it's kind of trying to put it in at all levels. 
I was interested to see, actually, I think a couple of months ago in the news, there was talk about introducing a GCSE around um, around uh, ESG or focusing on sustainability, which I thought was an excellent idea because, you know, as Laura said, it is the challenge of our generation, but it's going to continue to be the challenge of future generations as well. Oh, definitely. Definitely. It's one of the biggest concerns that our student body come in with. And we want to try and help create the creators of the future who are going to come up with the solutions to these problems. They have been thinking about this for a really long time because it's been impacting them their whole lives. And and that's a really important thing to foster and, and make it so that they have the knowledge that that they need and that we are educating ourselves as well on these issues. Yeah. Hannah, I could talk to you about this and and many other things all day, but I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap it up there. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Um, I think it's been one of the most fascinating episodes of the podcast that we've uh, recorded um, so far. So thank you very much. Um, And if listeners want to keep up to date with future episodes of the More Than Law podcast or to have a listen to our back catalogue, You can find us on all good podcast platforms Um, and please do give us a follow and maybe even a nice five-star review. Um, And if you'd like more news and views from the firm, you can head over to our website, forsters.co.uk, or you can follow us on all the usual social media channels, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or all of the above, if you're so minded. Um, And until next time, goodbye. Forster's More Than Law podcast is for general information only and should not be considered to be professional advice. Forster's LLP accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct or consequential loss arising from the use of, reliance on or reference to this podcast. Forster's LLP makes no warranty or representation as to the accuracy of the information contained in this podcast. The More Than Law podcast and any copyright in it is the property of Forster's LLP and it shall not be used, reproduced or quoted, whether in whole or part, without Forster's LLP's prior written consent.